have your Bible, go ahead and open to the book of Hebrews, the New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 2. This morning we're in another, another week into our study in this great uh, book of the New Testament that we're studying through this year. We're in chapter 2 again today. We've already looked at the first four verses of the chapter uh, Sunday before last where we, we found the first warning uh, in the letter. You remember uh, that, that warning right there at the, at the beginning of chapter 2. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. And the, the question of verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This, this great warning, the first of many in the book of Hebrews. And, and just, warnings are a prominent feature of Hebrews, just, just so you know that. I mean, you do find w- warnings in other places in the New Testament. Um, warnings against leaving the faith. Warning against turning away from Christ. You find him, for example, 2 Corinthians 13, 5 tells us to examine, says examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. That's a, that's a warning. Maybe I'm not. Examine yourself. Or 1 Timothy 6 warns against um, falling into the love of money. I don't, uh, and, and the desire for riches, the desire for wealth, the desire for material comfort and pleasures above all other things. And it says very specifically at the end of, 1 Timothy 6, that that desire, that love has caused many to wander away from the faith. It's true. It happens all the time. Or 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, talks, Peter talks about how it, it, is, it is much worse for those who know the truth and have known the truth and still turned away from it, how much worse it is for those than for those who have never heard. doesn't mean that those who have never heard are safe and sound. That's why we go to the nations. But it is a worse judgment upon those who have heard and maybe have even professed belief and later turned away from it. So you do have warnings here and there throughout the rest of the New Testament, but it's nothing like you have here in the book of Hebrews where within the same book, you have one warning after another, and they are often long. I mean, the one we looked at two, two weeks ago was the shortest one of all the, I think, five major warnings you have in Hebrews. Most often, they're long, and they're sustained, and they're carefully argued warnings. That's a major part of the letter. And we've, we have talked again and again about why. Why is it such a, a unique feature in that way in Hebrews, and it's not necessarily in other books, and it's because of who it was written to. In this book, we don't know exactly who, who wrote it, but it was written clearly. You can, see, you can see it in the letter. It's written to those who had apparently come to faith in Christ out of Judaism, but were tempted to leave Christianity now and go back to Judaism, back to their, their, the, the, the faith of their uh, heritage and their childhood. Because, again, as you can see just by reading the letter, because... For them, when they came to faith in Christ, life got a lot harder. It was hard enough being a Jew. 
There was already prejudice against you in the Roman Empire just for being a Jew, and now doubly so when you become a Christian. And, and, uh, and we talk about how some of them were uh, thrown into prison because of their, their faith. And so part of the persecution against the Christians, was they were being thrown into prison. But later in the book, when you read later in the book, you find that even those who even attempted to go and visit their brothers and sisters in Christ in prison, they were persecuted. I mean, you read, for example, in chapter 10, he, he says, uh, sometimes you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison. In other words, you had compassion on those in prison. You, you went and visited them in prison, but it says, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession than an abiding one. What's he talking about? He's saying that it was a reality that their brothers and sisters were being thrown into prison for being believers, and if they dared to leave home and go visit their brothers and sisters in Christ in prison, while they were gone, their home would be plundered. They'd come back to a ransacked home. I mean, imagine. Imagine. And they faced economic persecution, pressure. No one would buy their goods, or they wouldn't be allowed to buy other ones' goods because, they're, because of their faith. It was hard. So the author wrote this letter to those believers tempted to just leave it. It's not worth it. To, um, to warn them against leaving. They were tempted to say, well, at least there's half the pressure <laughs> of what I'm dealing with now if I just leave and go back to my old life. He's warning them about the consequences of leaving, but also... The whole book is not mere warning. The rest of the book is showing them all the glorious reason there is to stay and to persevere in Christ. That's the theme from the outset of the book. The first chapter, which we've already studied, was comparing Jesus to angels. And that's going to carry through into this chapter too. But in order to prove that the, the gospel message that God has declared through Christ is better than the law of the Old Testament that was declared to Moses from God, but through angels. Angels were the mediary of the, of the law. He's going to say, Christ is God himself who brought the gospel. Better, better. Um, that's something he's going to flesh out for the rest of the book. And that's going to start with our passage today in the remainder of chapter 2, because you'll notice when we just read it in just a minute that he's still talking about angels compared to Jesus. And comparing Jesus and his work for our salvation to the angels and their work. The point of this passage, though, that we're about to read and study is that Jesus is a better foundation. He's a better foundation for our life. He's a better foundation for our hope, for our salvation. He's just starting at the... It's like, it's like the book of Hebrews is, 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 is building a building, and so here he's just laying the foundation. He's laying the foundation. Jesus is just a better foundation. He's gonna, through, in later chapters, he's going to say... Jesus is a greater Moses. He's a greater priest. He's a greater sacrifice. He's, I mean, just story after story, but he's laying the foundation right here. Jesus is a better foundation. So the last Sunday we were here, two weeks ago actually in Hebrews, we looked at verses 1 through 4. Today we're going to focus on verses 5 through the end of the chapter. So let's begin reading in verse 5 and uh, read through verse 18. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. 
by the way, when did, it, when did he say, just so you know, because we're just jumping right in the middle of it, he says, now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Well, when has he ever said that so far in the letter? My, my understanding is he said that back in chapter 1, verse 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. And that's, that's where he's getting that. But anyway, verse 5 of chapter 2. Now it was not to angels that he subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering and death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies, those who are sanctified, all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. He's quoting from Psalm 22. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, he quotes Isaiah 8, I will put my trust in him. And again, still in Isaiah 8, Behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore... Children share in flesh and blood. He himself, likewise, partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And therefore, he had to be made like his brother in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Father, this is a, your holy, inspired, inerrant, perfect, authoritative, clear, necessary, and sufficient word. And uh, we, we bow our minds and our hearts in submission to it. We don't, we don't presume to come to it um, in an unthinking way, merely passively. We come wanting to think hard about your word, but with a with a, with a view to what it is. And it is your word. And so form us and shape us through studying your word this morning. Form our minds into the mind of Christ. Form our hearts into um, Christ's likeness. Give us eyes to see the truth. Give us ears to hear it. Give us minds to understand it. Give us hearts to love it and embrace it. Give us wills to live it out. 
faithfully for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're studying through this book this school year, and so this means that on average we're going to spend about two weeks per, per chapter to get to the end of it by graduation. But honestly, it's passages like this one that show you you could and probably should take a lot longer uh, to study this book because it seems like every verse and every paragraph is just so, so rich and so deeply argued and, and, and carefully argued from the Old Testament. There, I'll just go ahead and tell you, there's... We're just not going to get all that there is here this morning. I'm just, I'll, I'll say it. Like there's, there's whole verses that I'm just, we're not going to be able to talk about. Like, verse 11, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brother. That whole little phrase right there, we're not even going to get to that. Maybe on Theology Thursday we'll get to it. But it's rich. I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you, there's other good stuff here. There's really a lot of good stuff here. So, um, there's so much. But there's a lot of good truths to see here, and even when you barely scratch the surface, it's good. It's really good. So here's what I want us to see from this passage, um, what, he, what he focuses on, what he writes about, and that is basic gospel. He talks about Jesus' life for us. He'll say that in the early verses when he quotes mainly from Psalm 8 in verses 6 through 8. That's a beautiful, beautiful passage. Then he talks about Jesus' death for us, beginning at the end of verse 8 and verse 9 through 11. Then he's going to talk about, in, in, within that whole same mix of verses, he's going to talk about Jesus' exaltation for us. And I want to, that's good. I want to talk about that for a little bit. And then finally, I want to say a word about the uniqueness of Christianity. The uniqueness of Christianity based on what is said here, because that really is, at rock bottom, what is the, the argument here. Uh, to those who are being tempted to faith, to leave the faith, there is something unique about Christianity that you cannot and will not find anywhere else. There is something that Christ can provide that is found nowhere else. All right? So we're going to think about that, and let's dive in and think first about Jesus' life for us. This is what I see the author describing to us in this passage uh, at the outset. Look, look again at verses 5 through 8, where it says, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and that somewhere is Psalm 8. So he's going to quote from Psalm chapter 8 in these verses. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And we'll stop reading verse 8 right there. So he's quoting Psalm 8. I mean, the whole point that he's making in these verses hangs on Psalm 8, because he's just straight quoting it. So to get the point and to see the point that he's making here, we need to think about the message of Psalm 8 because he would have expected the original readers to get that. They would have known their Old Testament. They would have been familiar with Psalm 8. Perhaps they would have sung Psalm 8 in the synagogue in worship. They knew it. Uh, and so if we're going to see what he 
means by this, and in quoting this, what he's saying about Jesus here, we need to think about Psalm 8. So hold your place here and turn back to Psalm 8. Psalms around the middle of your Bible. Look for the 8th chapter. <coughs> and when you get there, you'll see the verses that he's quoting in Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, in Psalm 8, you'll see that in, in Psalm 2, he is quoting what in Psalm 8 are verses 4 through 6. Uh, Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. And we'll, we'll read, the, read that. Th this is a Psalm of David. And uh, we're going to read verses 4 through 6. <clears throat> and David says, beginning in verse 4, What is man? that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, or angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Okay, there you go. That's what he quoted in Hebrews 2. And so you can see... Um, that's the passage that he's quoting and, and, to, and, and, and to make his point about Jesus and, and why he is better than anything they might leave him for. And you can see immediately kind of why he quotes these verses for his argument in Hebrews. I mean, from the very, like I said earlier, from the very first verses of the letter in Hebrews, like you, don't, you get to the second verse and the claim is about Jesus that he is the heir of all things, meaning he owns it all. He is the Lord over it all. The heir means he receives it. He received it uh, as an inheritance. It's his. What's his? All things. He's the heir of all things. Hebrews 1, 2. And he's making the same, the author of Hebrews is making the same point in chapter 2 that the world to come has been subjected to him. And, and he quotes from this passage because it clearly fits the point that he's making. Because he says here... Clearly, at the end of verse 6 in, in, uh, in, in Psalm 8, that you have put all things under his feet. And, 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 and the funny thing is, though, <laughs> if you were just reading your Bible from beginning to end, you started your Bible reading plan in Genesis 1 on January 1 and... and you have been a faithful Bible reader because you're in the Psalms and you're still sticking with it. You didn't quit in Numbers. And uh, you, you're just trucking right along and you come to Psalm 8. By the way, Numbers is good though. Leviticus is tough, but Numbers is good. But you come to Psalm 8 and it just simply, when you first read it, if you're not reading it in light of Hebrews, it just seems like it's a, a reflection of David on Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, because it, it just reflects about how out of all the things that God created on the earth, and of all the creatures that God created, only one did God create in his own image. And David is just marveling on the goodness of God to give us such a privilege. That's why in verse 4 he begins, he's just dumbfounded by this goodness, and he says in verse 4, What is man that you are mindful of? of him or the son of man that you care for him so it seems like psalm 8 is just talking about man in general it's just talking about you and it's talking about 
me and the privilege we have of being made in the image of God. But then you come to Hebrews and you read Hebrews chapter 2 and, and, and the author of Hebrews quotes this very passage and says it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. How so? I think the answer to that lies in the key difference between this passage and how he quotes it in Hebrews 2. I don't know if you noticed that there was a difference between what it says here in Psalm 8 and how it's worded in the Hebrews 2 quotation, but there is a difference. And it's the first, the difference is found in the first half of verse 6, which says, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. That line <clears throat> was completely left out of the Hebrews 2 quotation of this. In Hebrews 2, it goes straight from you have crowned him with glory and honor to you have put all things under his feet. That, that line is, is not there. But the readers of Hebrews 2 would have known it was there. You have given him dominion. Now, I just said that the, that the writer of Hebrews said that this Psalm 8 passage is about Jesus. Well, then you have that phrase right there. You have given him dominion uh, over the works of your hands. Well, is, is that something that's uniquely true of Jesus? Or is that something that, in some sense, is true of us all? And the answer is the latter. That is something that is, the Bible teaches is something that, in some sense, is true of us all. Just remember Genesis chapter 1. Then God said... Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing. And he'll say that again in Genesis 1, 28. And so from the very beginning of the Bible, it tells us that, that we have been made in the image of God. That's where our value, that's where our worth comes from. It doesn't come from anything else besides the fact that God created us in our own image, in his own image, and, and therefore all life from, from birth to grave is valuable in every possible respect. But what does being made in the image of God mean aside from having word? It means, according to them, that we have dominion. We, we have a responsibility of exercising dominion. What does that even mean? It means that we are to order our lives in the world. We are to live, and we are to make decisions, and we are to act and speak and do all that we do in a way that reflects the character of God, our Creator, in whose image we are. In other words, being made in His image and having dominion is in our lives, in all that we do, in all that we say, in all that we think, we are being an image of Him. We are imaging Him in every sphere that we have. That's, that's having dominion. But think of the biblical story. Sin has kept us from that. Sin has kept us from that. We don't reflect his character. Even our repentance is often sinful. I mean, we, sometimes we can't even repent without lying to God, being proud, you know? We don't reflect his character, and we don't live and act in a way that honors him above all things and brings glory to him. And it's not just that that's unfortunate. It's what we owe him. 
And we failed to give him that. The whole point, though, of Hebrews chapter 2, if you wanted to go back there, is that Jesus is a better foundation for our salvation because he became like us. And the first thing that he did for our salvation, the whole point of quoting Psalm 8, is live the life that we were supposed to live. Is exercise the dominion that we were supposed to exercise. That you were supposed to exercise. And he'll say in Hebrews 4.15 that he was one who in every respect, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Why does it say he was tempted in every respect as we are? Because he was doing it for us. He was living our life in our place. He earned the glory for us that we get to share in through repentance and faith. But the glory that Jesus earned for us through his life, this, his perfect life, hinted at in verses 5 through 8, is only given to us through repentance and faith because of his death for us. And that's his point in verses 9 through 11. 9 through 11. Look at those verses again. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers so he's still thinking about psalm 8 in these verses because he mentions there at the beginning of verse 8 we see him him who for a little while was made lower than the angels that's still referring to what psalm 8 says but why was he made lower than the angels for a little time we saw the point in verse 8 was that to live the perfect life in our place. But what else? Well, he says in verse 9, to endure the suffering of death. <coughs> to endure the suffering of death. Why? Why did he need to come and endure the suffering of death? Not only live a perfect life, but endure the suffering of death. Well, he'll say in verse 10, because his aim was to bring many sons to glory. Why was death necessary to bring us to glory. Why was the death of Jesus necessary to bring us to glory? There's an important word that at the end of the chapter that makes it clear. And by the way, <coughs> excuse me, I'm sorry. This is a key difference between, and I'm going to skip ahead but a little bit, preview the uniqueness of Christianity. This is a, this is a key difference between what Christians believe and other religions of the world. Just yesterday at the, at the block party we had, I was talking with uh, a Muslim guy and sharing the gospel with him. and We were talking about the Day of Judgment. And he was, I said, are you certain of what, what God's going to say to you on the Day of Judgment? And he said he's not. He hopes to go to heaven, you know. And I said, well, how does anybody go to heaven? And his answer was, 
well, you just, you try to obey, and you just try to repent as best you can of your sin. Well, repentance is necessary, but if all we have is repentance, our understanding of God is that's not enough. Repentance is not enough, because if if God is holy, as God says he is holy, then if he forgave us merely on the basis of repentance, he has to sacrifice some of his holiness in order to do that. He has to hit pause on his holiness to show us mercy. And God doesn't do that. So then how does God show us mercy? Why is death necessary to bring us to glory, in other words? There's an important word at the end of the chapter that makes it clear. Look down in verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the people. Do you realize... Look at those words carefully. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. A merciful and a faithful high priest. A, a high priest, as we'll see a lot in, in Hebrews. Uh, a priest had two, two basic roles. One to represent God to the people and to represent the people to God. And, and, and he had two competing temptations. As a, as a priest, he wants to be merciful to the people, but he wants to be faithful to God. He wants to be merciful with the weaknesses and the sins of the people because he knows his own sin, but he knows he can't just ignore the sin. If he just ignored it, he wouldn't be faithful to God. So how can, how can you be both merciful and faithful? There's a beautiful word here. Propitiation. So that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the people. That's a big word, but what does it mean? It means to remove wrath. I know you don't go around and use words like propitiation, but it's in the Bible, so you might as well know what it means. There's two big words in the Bible. There's propitiation and there's expiation. Propitiation, expiation. Expiation means my guilt is removed. Propitiation means God's wrath is removed. God's wrath is removed. Jesus was a propitiation by his death. His death removed God's Wrath, it propitiated God's wrath against us because of our sin. Jesus became like us to live for us and to die for us so that, and, and, and in dying for us, propitiate the wrath of God so that when we repent and believe, God can forgive us without sweeping our sin under the rug. 
It's what, it's what Paul is saying in Romans 3. When it says, we all know Romans 3.23 all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but if you ever think about the words that come after that, and we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a what? As a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, that is His divine patience, he had passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Without a propitiation, without a payment for our sins, God might be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus but not be just in doing so. But because Jesus lived in our place, died in our place, propitiated His wrath because of our sins, God can justify us and be just in doing so. Because He, did not, he would not be, in that case, unjustly with, withholding His wrath over something His holiness demands that He be wrathful over. He poured it out on Jesus instead of us. Notice, too, it says, He had to be made like this because apart from it there isn't any forgiveness but even with his life and his death for us there isn't any hope for us at all without one more thing and that's his exaltation for us throughout the first half of this passage this is pointed to i mean the opening words in verse five are have to do with the fact that the the world to come has been subjected to jesus now it was not to angels that god subjected the world to come it was to Jesus that he subjected the world to come. He says that at verse, verse 8. That he put everything in subjection under his feet. And he even goes so far as to say, what that means is, he left nothing outside his control. And again, when Psalm 8 is quoted, it's quoted here particularly because it says, he said he is now crowned with glory and honor. When did that happen? When did Jesus go from, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I thirst. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When does he go from, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To glory and honor with all things under his feet and nothing outside his control. When does he go from one to the other? He goes... From this to that, at his resurrection from the dead. That's when that happens. It was at his resurrection that he said to his, his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that he ascended to the right hand of God the Father, where he is now, at this very moment, working all things together for our good, and where Hebrews 7.25 says that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know that Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus is praying for you right now. And Romans 8 tells us that the Holy Spirit is too. The writer of Hebrews wants them to know in a very real way what Jesus' 
life and death and the exaltation for them meant. So he says in verse 14 that one thing that means in verse 14 is that he destroyed the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. Satan holds the fear of death over our heads. Because of our sin, it's a justifiable fear. And God really is holy. And we really are sinners. But that fear and Satan's power in holding it over our heads is taken away when Christ has taken that reality on himself and overcome it for us and in our place. And not only that, but the final words of this chapter remind us that not only is Christ now interceding for us at the right hand of the Father, but he is with us in our struggle. He has, he has already gone through the struggle. He is able to help those who are being tempted. In verse 18 it says that. also says it in verse 16. This whole passage is setting up the rest of the book. Um, that's going to pick apart in unbelievable detail how the salvation that Jesus provided is better than anything else you might put your hope in or try to find comfort in. You won't find it anywhere else. And from all this, I just want to say a quick word to wrap up about the uniqueness of Christianity. This whole message of the gospel, as I alluded to earlier, shows how deeply and starkly different the Christian gospel is from every other religion or every other worldview in the world. Because no other religion, no other worldview in the world can provide a sure, as sure a foundation as the Christian gospel. Every other religion teaches that it's, it's on us to do all we can to please God or the gods or however we conceive of God, to hopefully earn His favor or their favor by our good works or by our obedience. And that's true here. What were they tempted to leave Christ and go back to? The law. Back to my obedience for God and my keeping the law for God. Me, and it's about me and how, how, how good or bad I'm being. But those who live that way, well, and it's the same, it's, it's the same as I just mentioned. The, the Muslim guy that I talked to yesterday has no idea how the day of judgment is going to turn out for him. No idea. And those who live and think that way live in constant uncertainty and fear. And rightly so. Because sin is such an inescapable reality. If you were here last week during the missions festival, particularly on Wednesday when Martin Durham in London spoke, he made reference to this. It was on, printed on a side of a bus. Even the, the atheist who chooses to live as though there is no God, A, doesn't, doesn't, the most vociferous and vocal atheist who claims there is no God does not live like it. But secondly, the most vocal and committed atheist at most can say there is probably no God. Probably. No matter how you slice it. There is an awareness of God and His holiness written on our hearts. 
and in our consciences. And no other religion, no other worldview can give the foundation for peace with God and the certainty of it and all that comes with it like the gospel of Jesus Christ. In every other religion, every other worldview, it's based on what we do, but the Christian gospel is because of our sin, no amount of good we can do can bring us any closer to God, but praise be to God, he came close to us. And God met his own demands. That's the Christian gospel. And Peter said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved.